0: Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. There's a direct correlation between preparation and success. And especially when it comes to things of a spiritual nature, I think a lot of us kind of just show up, and we expect to be moved. And oftentimes when we're not, then we're disappointed and we kind of blame the service or we blame the speaker or we blame, <laughs> there, there's a lot of blame to go around. None of it's our fault, of course. And yet the truth is that the default setting of a person's heart is closed. Our hearts are closed most of the time. And if you really want to get the most of something, if you can enter into a situation with an open heart, then a large part of the battle is already won. Because, And so God gives us this amazing gift. He gives us the entire month of Elul, which is the month that we're in right now. And the job of Elul really is for us to open up our hearts so that we're doing the work right now. And that when we enter into Rosh Hashanah, right into the new year into Yom Kippur, it's just sort of like rolling highs, if we can use our Elul this month properly. Okay, so I think you all get the idea. So with with that in mind, there's so many things that are said about Elul, and I just want to touch on some of the more famous ones before we go a little bit deeper. So everybody knows that Elul is Roshe Tevos. It, it, it's the first letters of the phrase from Song of Songs, from Shere Sherim. Ani l'dodi Vidodi li, which means I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. And then we have another epic description of Elul, which is that the king is in the field. So normally speaking, the king is in the palace. So you never see the king, but now the king is in the field. Now that's, again, very unusual because Normally speaking, if you're lucky, if you ever get the opportunity, and most people in their lifetime, they never got the opportunity, you would go to the palace to see the king. But the idea that the king is coming out to see you, that the king is in the field, that's that's very unusual. So so again, the idea is, who is the king? Who is the ultimate king? That's Hashem. So Hashem is actually coming to us in the month of El. I have to thank Reb Shlomo because he communicated everything Whenever he talked about us and Hashem and the world, everything was always put into the language of relationships. And we tend to think of it as a construct, just sort of like, you know, in my neighborhood, a couple blocks from me on the corner, there's a supermarket. So that's like a construct. It's just there. You know, I live two blocks away and two blocks away on the corner, there's a supermarket. It's a reality, but it's kind of just there right? So a lot of people think of God as just sort of like God is there. He, you know, if they believe at all, he exists and he's there, right? But that's not really a relationship. It's a recognition. It's, it's the beginning of a relationship because at least you, you, you know that there's a God and, you know, you're supposed to do something with that thought, right? But but it's not quite on the level of a relationship. And I think so many of us who grow up without learning about these things more deeply, God is just this construct. God is just there. To to me what's so striking is God is already there. Like that's this idea of the king is in the fields. God is God is already there. So so it's almost like it's, it's almost insulting or, or hurtful in a way that because God is so present, not to allow him in. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of like, it's not like we have to run out and find God. It's God is like, imagine in one version, let's talk about dating. In one version, you have to call the person and then meet them. Okay, so you have to make a date. In the other version, you're at the restaurant and, you know, your, your date is with you at the restaurant and the entire time at the restaurant, you're on your phone and you're talking to other people at the restaurant, <laughs> right? It's incredibly rude. It's incredibly rude precisely because the person is there. Okay, God is not a person. God is not, has no body. But God is with us all the time. And so the idea of not engaging with God who is already there and who is keeping us alive and who we are engulfed in, I mean, it's not great. But when you realize that awareness, then God is so close. It's so beautiful. I mean, you're never alone. You're always with the one who loves you the most. I've given you this example before, but I think it's one of the the best, 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 best. I heard it from, in the name of Rav Mati Berger, who said that the relationship, a, a, a relationship is determined by the person who is less involved in the relationship. So the example is, is that if I call you every day and you call me back once a month, we have a once-a-month relationship, not an everyday relationship, because the relationship is determined by the person who's less involved. So with that in mind, God is keeping us alive every single moment. So, so our phone is ringing. God is calling us every single moment. So we determine the relationship that we want with God. So if we kind of think about God, you know, once a week or once a year or whatever it is and we have a once a week or once a year relationship with God. But we have the ability of having an every moment relationship with God precisely because God is engaged with us on that level. So that's that this is a very this is a breakthrough thought because we're so used to thinking of it in the following way. God is close to me to the extent that he's answering my prayer. (laughs) So if I'm asking for cash or a big job or this, that, or the other thing, and God is not giving me that thing, God's not so close to me. But that's this is fiction. This is fiction. God never stops being incredibly close. And this whole idea that we're putting up this set of rules... Is, is our imagination and our, really our Sahara, but, but most people haven't thought it through to the extent that they need to to untangle the knots that are in our minds and our hearts in understanding the closeness of God. So, okay, it might be incredibly painful and incredibly frustrating because I want this and that and I really want it and I really need it and God, you don't seem to be giving it to me. So how could it be that you're so close? All right, so then that's the beginning of a conversation. What am I do? What am I not doing, God, that I need to be doing? Because I know you want to give this to me, right? So, or or why do I think I need this when I don't? Or what else should I be thinking about other than this? If this is not what's meant for me in terms of the fixing of my soul. I mean, there's a lot of different directions that a person can go with it. But it's the beginning of the conversation, not the end of the conversation. The version where it's the end of the conversation is, God, I want this. You're not giving me this. Therefore, you're not close. Therefore, why do I want to be in a relationship with you if you, if you like, are treating me like this? And this is the dead end that 90% of the world's population, or I'm making up numbers now, but but so many of us, just like like lemmings, like just go in in, in that direction. But if you think of it from the standpoint that God is keeping us alive every single moment and whatever good thing we have in our entire lives is coming from God and God is actually giving to us in ways that we are receiving and enjoying on a regular basis, then you have to reevaluate the way you think about God. You have to reevaluate absolutely everything. Right. And, and I, I've shared with you before this, like very far out concept that our prayers are constantly being answered. We're just not praying them. Right. So some way out answers, some way out examples of that are you wake up in, in the morning and you, you know, you're off to work and you and you open up your front door. And you know what? Your prayer was just answered. What are you talking about? You have a front door. <laughs> Robbers during the night didn't take an axe and chop down your front door. Your prayer that you should still have a front door was answered. You just never prayed it. Then you get into your car. Your prayer was answered. What was the prayer? Please, may my car not be stolen overnight. Your prayer was answered. You just didn't pray it. Then you turn the key and your ignition turns over. And you hear that, that sweet vroom. Right? Your prayer was answered. Please, God, let me not be late to all my appointments and have to call Triple A because my battery is dead. Again, your prayer was answered. You just didn't pray it. So, so so there is so much heavenly delight and, and and blessing coming to us every single moment. But we have to rewire our brain and rewire our attitude in order to see it. And I'm not being a Pollyanna right now. I'm not being like, oh, everything is good, it's, it's all good. I'm not saying that at all, I'm talking reality right now. It's just we were, we're so lost in the exile, we're so lost in the darkness, that you know we've just followed our, our worst instincts down rabbit holes with, with direct impact, negative impact in terms of our relationship with God. And we can't afford to do that. If we want to be sentient, feeling, conscious human beings, we have to reorient ourselves. And not reorient ourselves like, okay, let me, you know, try to see the good. No, I'm talking about seeing the reality which is the good. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. And that doesn't mean that suffering all of a sudden disappears from the equation. Right, that's part of the reality as well. But at least now we're dealing with reality as it exists. And I heard something very, very deep on Shabbos from Rabbi Grama. He there was a bar mitzvah, and he was talking to the bar mitzvah boy, and he was he he referenced a teaching from his father-in-law, who was like the head of the bais din in. Mar- Mar- Marseille, which is in France, who he had never met, but who had written a book, and and he's studied his father-in-law's book, which is so beautiful, you know. It's a great, I think, inspiration for anyone who's interested in writing a book that you're going to have descendants who you may never meet, very crucial relationships with people you may never meet, and they have a chance to really get to know you in a very deep and beautiful way through a book if you if you write a book okay we have a commandment in parsha shovtim god says that the jewish people should make a king over themselves right and then many generations later many many generations later the jewish people say to the to the to the prophet shmuel Shmuel is very, very great. Shmuel is compared to Moshe and Aaron. That's how great Shmuel is, right? In English, we say Samuel. And and the Jewish people say to Shmuel, we want a king. And that that sounds all well and good because we see in the Torah itself, it says that, that we can make a king. And when Shmuel hears that the Jewish people want a king, he starts yelling at them. How can you possibly want a king? What are you doing? So that's the mysterious part. Because did did, did Shmuel not know the Torah? Didn't Shmuel know that it's it's a commandment right in the Torah? So what is he yelling at them for? It seems that, that this is a great thing that the Jewish people want. They want to fulfill this commandment. Well, now we get into this very special teaching. You see, there was something problematic about why they wanted a king. And what Shmuel assessed, because he properly understood what was going, he took an x-ray of the Jewish people, let's just say, and he understood where this desire was coming from. And it wasn't coming from a good place. You see, what they wanted to do is they wanted to distance themselves from God. And they said, we want a king like the other nations have a king. In other words, they wanted this idea of a king who would somehow be a wedge between them and God. And the Jewish notion, the Torah notion of a king, is someone who is so thoroughly connected to God. He is not someone who's a figurehead which distances anyone from God, who suggests that there's an authority other than God. In fact, there are certain commandments which are very interesting, and they're unique to a king. A king had to write two Sefer Torahs, and one of the Sefer Torahs, a king had to keep on his body at all times. Isn't that fascinating? And there's a kind of a debate among the commentators where exactly that Torah scroll would be kept. And Rabbi Kaplan, Rabbi Ari Kaplan, Oliver shalom, you know, questioned like, Like really, to have a Torah scroll on your body? Like anyone who's been to a shul and knows that a Torah scroll can be quite large. How are you gonna carry it on your body? Like a backpack at all times? I mean, how are you gonna do it? And you can write incredibly tiny letters. I remember as a kid, you know, Ripley's, believe it or not, they would talk about people who would write like, like paragraphs on a grain of rice. You can look that up if you want to Google grain of rice and Ripley's, believe it or not, you'll see that writing can actually be quite tiny. This is just an aside, but the size of the Torah scroll was not an issue. You can write an entire Torah, very small, and you either wore it around your neck as a pendant or you wore it attached to your arm. And the king of Israel had to have this Torah scroll on him at all times. Again, what's the point? The point is that the king was not a wedge between the people and God. Rather, he was just a further manifestation of godliness in the world. And I'll give you another example. By the way, if you want to get a little bit technical, I think that this is interesting. It's, it's a bit of Torah minutia, but it is striking, which is that the king was allowed to go into the bathroom with his Torah scroll, which normally speaking, you're not allowed to take Torah books into the bathroom and you're not even allowed to think about Torah in the bathroom. That's a sign of yira, of awe, of respect to God. But as Rabbi Nachman says, you can long to think about Torah in the bathroom, which is this amazing, amazing solution. But anyway, it is so strict was the command that the king never part with this Torah scroll on him, that that leniency was granted for the king. I'll give you another example. We bow three times during Shmoneh Esrei, and the king had to bow all of Shmoneh Esrei. Shmoneh Esrei, of course, is the this this the central prayer in the morning, afternoon, and evenings prayers, and he had to be prostrate during the entirety of that prayer. Again, because someone who's a king is receiving honor, so much honor at all times, at a certain point, it's likely to be corruptive. And it's likely that the king should think that he is the one who is receiving honor, as opposed to that he is a representative of God and that it's God's honor. And so this idea of the Torah scroll being worn on his body and bowing during all of Shmona Esrei, were these checks and balances, if you will, to keep him in this place of humility. And he needed it more than other people. So that's why they had these exceptional rules. Anyway, Shmuel says, you know something? You're trying to distance yourself from God with this idea of a king. And now let me reference Rabbi Grandma's father-in-law, what he said. He said that there is a certain offering, and in this case, one would be to pour oil on it and the other would be to put frankincense on top of it. So when God gives us the command to to make a king, he uses the same verb as pouring oil on the sacrifice. And when the people ask for a king, they use the verb from that same verse which is putting frankincense on top. And now we're going to get to the point. All right. When the Torah talks about a king, they use the language of this pouring of oil, the same verb that's used with the pouring of oil in the sacrifice. You know what happens when you pour oil on something? It saturates. It gets into all the nooks and crannies of something. And so So you become filled with that thing. And so when God gives us the mitzvah of making a king, the idea is that we get filled with his sense of majesty and that there's a closer connection. When we request a king, we use the verb which correlates with putting the frankincense on top of the offering. You see, when the frankincense is on top of the offering, it doesn't saturate the offering itself. It's a separate construct. Or, like we began, it's the supermarket two blocks away on the corner. (laughs) That's the notion of the king. That God is just this thing that exists but far away. He is separate from me. And... Now we're getting back into the whole idea of relationship and Elul and king in the field. And I am my beloved's, and my beloved's is mine. It's this whole idea of saturation and entrance, and this whole idea that God is not, God forbid, the other, but that I'm a ray and emanation of godliness. And we're going to get more into that in a deeper way in a moment. But I'm an emanation of godliness. So, so he said to the bar mitzvah boy, by the way, he said, you know, your parents raised you in this way that your relationship with God shouldn't be that God is the other. And I think that's, I think that that's an awesome, just an awesome way of thinking about it. Is God oil on you that's saturating you and entering into you? Or is God something that just sits atop you and you're you and God's God? And that's kind of what it is. And I think that's something that everybody has to ask themselves. Because... That literally makes the difference to the life that you lead. You know, the, it's funny. It's a, the very first talk that I ever gave, like public talk, I guess, was called Making Hashem Your Best Friend. And so I've kind of been on this subject <laughs> for a long, long time right now because I really feel this one thought, this one thought is the game changer, you know, in terms of how you go through life. And, and how you realize that is another teaching that I can't just say over often enough, which is Revi Nachman of Breslov, who says, how do you talk to God, right? You have to talk to God like he's your best friend. And that's going to create the relationship, which is this idea of the oil saturating you as opposed to God being an other. See, I want to tell you something. One of the sections of the Torah that we are going to read before the New Year, and again, it always comes this time of year, is there's two sections of curses in the Torah. So they always arrange that it should be the second to last week. It's just another beautiful demonstration of how the sages were very mindful of our mental health, basically. But anyway, after this whole string of curses it says now why are all these things going to befall you and it says because when times were good and you had abundance you didn't serve God with the fullness of your heart like with joy and by the way Rebbe Nachman you know all the different Hasidic masters have their pathway to serve God and Breslov Rebbe Nachman it's like that pathway is joy and one of the reasons why it's joy, one of the reasons, is based on this verse. Be- why did all these things befall us? Because we didn't serve God with joy. So from that, Rebbe Nachman very wisely learned out, wow, God wants joy. <laughs> God wants us to really actually serve him with joy, to love serving him. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I saw in this sefer, the orchos Yosher, he takes it one practical step of definition. When you talk about joy, joy is kind of vague, right? Like I get the general idea, but I need something a little more practical than that. So he does that. Now listen to this. He says, think about how happy you are when you get a bunch of money. That's your baseline. Now think about how much you're loving God. (laughs) Okay, are you getting the idea here? It should be more. It should be more because it should be your greatest delight. It should be your central relationship. It should be the core of your being. And now every single person has an individualized barometer for something that may be otherwise very abstract. Think about when you get something that you really like, How you feel, okay, that's your baseline. Now, what is your relationship and your level of love with God? It's got to be more than that. And that's called loving God. All right? And I personally love that because it's putting a laser like, practical focus on something that just seems like very undefined otherwise. These things need for us to take actions. The learning about these things is not where our role in the relationship ends. Say I get a toy and the toy's not working and I go, okay, I just learned about the concept of batteries. (laughs) I have to put batteries in the toy for the toy to start. What a great lesson, thank you. And then I don't put batteries in the toy. Right? So so learning about them is not the same thing as implementing them. These things have to be thought about and implemented. As I've shared with you before, we say, God, you're so great. You run the world. You're everything. And then we pass the ball to God. And God says, oh, I love you so much. You know, you're thinking the right thoughts. I love that you're connecting. And then he hands the ball back to us. <laughs> And then we go, no, 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 God, you're really, you know, nothing can be done without you. And then we hand the wool to God, and He goes, oh, you're so right. And then He hands it back to us. This chain never ends without it being handed back to us. And we won't outsmart God. We will not outsmart God. It will always end with the ball in our hand and the phone call or the email or the thing that we have to say or the action that we have to do. It will always end that way. And we don't get let off the hook. Okay. So now these are some ideas about Elul that we're discussing. But I want to get a little I wanna get a little deeper now. You know, the Torah also has a concept of time, that each month has its own personality. And it's very important when we learn these ideas that you remember that there is only one power in the universe, as we say, Right? It's God and nothing else. And also, God is one. So there's only God and there is no other power right so you know when we talk about time having a personality don't think time is a power time is not a power this is the problem with people who get into zodiacs and horoscopes and things like that is that they think that this day has a power this day is good that day is bad and they they invest time with a power that it doesn't have. And this is akin to idol worship. There is only one power and that's God. Okay, now having said that, not every day is the same and not even every moment is the same. Like there's a different quality of light that's beaming down all of the time. And it's a very complex Formula of what the nature of the light is from moment to moment. It's a different tziruf, a different arrangement of the the letters of Hashem's name that's coming down every single moment, okay? And a lot of that has to do with where are you holding spiritually? How are you receiving the light spiritually? What is God bringing down in terms of the needs of the people at that moment? How are we doing as a community? How are we doing as a world? How are you doing individually? All of these things are, are being factored in. What fixing do you need? What needs do you need answered? There's, there's a lot of calculations that are being run every single nanosecond. Really, honestly. I mean, it's phenomenally complex. And God it is in his infinity. It's simple for God. But what I'm trying to tell you is that no moment is alike, which is a beautiful thing. Because one of the things that leads to depression is this notion that a person is stuck. I'm stuck, right? Yesterday was yesterday. Today is the same as yesterday. Tomorrow is going to be the same as today, which is the same as yesterday. I'm stuck. But this is not a person's mind. Because every single moment, even within an hour, even within a minute, is completely different. Which means every single moment is a new opening. So nobody is stuck. Even if you think you're stuck, you're not stuck. Every single moment is a new opening because it's never existed before and it wasn't like a moment ago. Very important to keep in mind. So you say, well, I can't do it. Okay, you know, you're right. Maybe a moment ago you couldn't do it. But what about now? (laughs) Now it's a different world. And now it's a different world from the last time I said that it was a different world. Okay, so so each month has a different personality to it. Not, remember, it's not a separate power. There's a different personality to it and there's a different opportunity. So now, since we started off by saying that there's a direct correlation to which you prepare for something and what you get out of it. That's not our idea. That's a heavenly idea. So Elul is tied to Rosh Hashanah because Elul is constructed as preparation for Rosh Hashanah. So now, with that in mind, the Mazel, which means the spiritual personality, the Mazel of Elul is the basu, which we would translate in English as the virgin. So that's interesting. Why is it the virgin, if you consider the fact that Elul would be the last month of the old year. It's not going to be the basulah right? That would be a married woman with children already. In other words, it would bespeak a maturation process. So why is it the basula? So that's what I'm trying to tell you. It's the basula because you see the nature of Elul is completely tied to the preparation for the new year that's about to happen. Okay, it's just, I'm just giving you a some proof, if you will, that Elul exists for Rosh Hashanah. Okay, so now, let me factor in another idea, and now we're getting very, very deep. Okay, each month has a letter assigned to it. Now, the letter for Elul is the letter Yud. And that's really exalted. This is really, really exalted. Remember, remember, excuse me. Remember, Yud is unique in the whole Torah alphabet. Every letter in the olive base, And remember, each of the letters. Think of it as a different energy wavelength. Okay. And Hashem created the universe with the letters, and the highest of all of them is the letter Yud. Now, maybe you would think, shouldn't it be Aleph? Because Aleph is the first letter of the olive bays, and, you know, Aleph is just a way-out letter. I mean, Aleph is really three letters, Yud, Vav, and another Yud, and that adds up to 26, which is the numerical equivalent of God's holiest name, vav Vavkeh. So you'd think Aleph is one, and God is one, and it's got to be Aleph is higher. But you want to hear something way out? When you write the letter Aleph, the first thing that you do is you write the upper Yud of the letter Aleph. Isn't that awesome? You write the upper Yud, and then you make the diagonal line, which is above, and then you write the lower Yud. And then when they're all connected, that spells the letter Aleph. But what i'm telling you here is that if you picture the letter aleph the first part of the letter aleph is the letter yud so there you see wow so yud is even above aleph that's awesome right and then another visualization of of yud which i always love is that if you draw a line all the letters of the olive base of the Hebrew alphabet, hit the line. They go all the way down to line, and some of them even go below the line. But there's only one out of all 27 letters, if you include the five final letters. There's only one that hovers above the line, and that's the letter Yud. It's so holy. It's so exalted, right? You know, one of my one of the things that hit me was that that Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the year, right? And the first, the first letter of Yom Kippur is the letter Yud, right? Because it's just this heavenly day. It's this heavenly day. And one, one year, I even had an image of the Yud of Yom Kippur, right? You ready for this? That it's like, you know when a rocket ship blasts off, and then it, the, the lower stages, the lower parts of the rocket ship fall off, and then there's just this little capsule, and it's just going up and up and up and up. That's like the letter Yud of Yom Kippur, right? It's just it's just the capsule. And it's just flying higher and higher and higher and higher. Okay. So isn't it interesting that the letter for Elul is the letter Yud? You see, now we're going to get a little Kabbalistic. There are stages in terms of the formation of the world. The first stage is something called Ratsan. Ratsan is the desire, the will. And then the next stage is Makshava. Makshava means thought. So you're taking your desire, your will, and now it's being articulated in terms of an actual thought. This is what. I want. You can articulate it. And then the next stage is tsir. Now thought is now becoming a plan. And then you implement the plan itself. When we talk about that that highest will of God, we express it in the language of the letter Yud. And that letter Yud is really existing before the creation of the world itself, because it's already talking about God's desire to make a world. So what happens in Elul is very, very interesting, because Elul includes two things. Elul includes the time before the world was created, and it also includes the time that the world was created. So listen carefully because a lot of people get kind of tripped up and mixed up on this thought. A lot of people say, well, wait a second, I'm, I'm confused. I thought the world was created on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, which is which would be the first day of Tishrei, which is the next month, the month after Elul, right? So, So it's actually not the case. The, the first day of creation, when God said, V'yehi or, let there be light, that was on the 25th day of El. Do you understand? And the sixth day of creation, which is the letter Vav, Vav is, Vav is six, we're going to get into that in a moment, that is Rosh Hashanah. That's the day that human beings were created. And since the whole purpose of the creation of the entire universe would be that there should be a human being who could have free choice and choose to serve God, unlike the angels who have to serve God. Because remember, they see God so clearly. They don't see all of God. Only God sees all of God. But they have such a quantumly higher recognition of Hashem's presence, like the level of revelation of godliness in the heavenly spheres is so much greater, that they're paralyzed so to speak before God all they can do is God's will but God didn't want more like holy robots right God wanted this creature human beings who could exist in a concealed in a place where that light was concealed and choose to serve God that that is the glory of the human being that is the goal of creation and it gets deeper than that it gets deeper than that. Because even more than doing the right thing. And God wants us to do the right thing. And, and and we have to do, we're commanded to do the right thing. We have to do the right thing. But even deeper than that is that we should long and desire to do the right thing. That is the most elemental aspect of your humanity in terms of your purpose in this world, in terms of why the world was created. That longing, that yearning for God, that yearning to do what's right. And then God will will also be able to, to perform the act itself and to do what's right. But that yearning is the soul of the human being in the deepest sense. Okay. So, so, again, just to review, God created human beings on the sixth day of creation, and that, there's we know the date on the calendar, we know what day that happened. That's the first day of Tishrei, which goes by the name Rosh Hashanah. Very good. Which means that the world was actually created the first day on the 25th of Elul. Okay, so now let's go back to Elul, which is our topic. So we see that Elul has two elements in it, doesn't it? It has the period before the world was created, and it actually has the beginning of the creation of the world itself. Both of those things are taking place in Elul. Now with that in mind, you see how appropriate it is that the letter Yud should be assigned to Elul. Because that that letter Yud correlates with God's Ratzon, God's initial desire and thought to create the world before the world was created. So very good. So you see that it should be. We have to see that letter Yud in there if we're talking about the period before the world was created. But now we're going to take the next step. What about the creation of the world itself, which also takes place in Elul? How does that correlate with the basula, the virgin, and also with this letter Yud? Well, the letter Yud has many different symbolic attributes to it that the rabbis assigned to it over the over the thousands of years of studying these topics. And one of the sort of like more interesting ones, and it very much correlates with what we're talking about right now, is, is the male seed. Or in Hebrew, we would say zera. Now, wow, isn't that interesting? Because now you see that all of the elements for birth, for the birth of the new year, are spiritually in place right now. You have the male zera his seed, that's the Yud. And you have the basula. right? The basula, because we're not talking about a married woman at this point. In other words, her relevance is not, or her identity is not defined by the year that's ending right now. Her identity is defined by the new creation, this new year, this new universe, because when God creates the new year, he's not just sort of like flipping the pages on a calendar. God is creating a brand new universe. He's creating everything, including us, all over again. So there's, in human terms, there's this concept of birthing the new year. This, and, and all of the elements are right there in El. And you see, that now, the, the idea, you know, is, isn't it striking? First of all, a lot of people get married in Elo. I, I myself got married in Elo. It's, and, and a lot of people, I've seen it with my own eyes many times. On the chuppah itself, on the marriage canopy itself, you'll see the words. Ani v'dodi li. I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. Well, that's certainly appropriate for for man and woman. But isn't it interesting that the name of El itself has that name? Because what we're talking about is not just this conception of the new year that's happening, but we're talking about it in the context of a relationship that's happening, where God is not the other, that God is one who permeates us. And not only that, but that the central dynamic between us and God is love. That it's all being done in this amazing love affair that's taking place between us and God. You know, I was so struck when I when 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 I learned this that the Rambam Maimonides is is often held up in Jewish thought as the Paradigm of rationality, right? Like, like you know, like that's where you go to for just—you're not going for inspiring drushas, although he has those as well. But but you're going to get kind of kind of just getting the straight facts. Codification, ramba. Okay, very good. So in his codification. He addresses this idea of this mitzvah of loving God. So, so what does the Ramba, right, our, our classic rationalist, what does he say about the mitzvah of loving God? And he says, you have to be lovesick over God. <laughs> I mean, is that emotional enough for you? And this is the Rambah I'm talking right now. You have to walk around lovesick over God. I mean, when you walk down the street, you just like go, how did you do it, God? How did you make all of this? How did you do it? Like that type of cleaving. That, that, is, that is how we're supposed to actually go through all of life. So so now I want to go deeper. Let's talk about genetics for a moment. Let me ask you a question. If two chihuahuas have a baby, what is the baby going to be? And the answer is a chihuahua. (laughs) I think you probably all got that correct, okay? If two very tall people have a baby, what is that baby going to be? Tall. <laughs> that, that's, that's the right answer. If you have two highly intellectual people, what is that baby going to be? Smart <laughs> that, that, that is the answer. This is this is like very, very basic genetics that we're doing right now. Okay. So so let's apply this to El. If we are conceiving the new year right now, and we just saw with those examples that the baby looks like the parent, well, your year is gonna look like what you are, right? Your year is gonna be a reflection of your present state. If you're, if you're longing for God, if you're, if you're creating that love relationship, if you're going over past deeds and wondering like, well, did I do my best there? You know, who do I have to make amends with? What do I have to do to go into this year in a really wholesome way? then that suggests that your offspring, which is the new year, is going to look like the parent, which is you and your actions and your deeds. So it's very important, since all of us right now are about to give birth, that we we get into shape, basically. That's, that's intense. That's intense. Because I think sometimes there's the temptation that of not wanting to take responsibility. And I'm thinking of God, you know, just as this incredibly cryptic, mysterious presence. And I think that, that while that's true on the highest level, like we can never fully understand God's ways, Right. God says epically, he says, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts, which is a wonderful reminder to keep <laughs> to, to, to keep in front of you. That If you want instant humility, all you have to do is remember those words. My ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts, because sometimes we we decide the way it should be. And, you know, it's God's problem. And God says, you know, I, I know what I'm doing. The thing is, is that, and what's so hard for us, is that God gives us what it is that we need. What we need to fix our soul. And, you know, it's... If, if we want something else, we have to put ourselves in the position to be able to receive that thing. So, so for instance... An example that I, I I always think of, especially this time of year, is imagine Rabbi David Aaron gave gave over this, this this idea of 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 the playwright, so to speak, or the you know if you want to think of it in television, the executive producer, right, the showrunner, which Kaviocho, so to speak, is God, and normally speaking, the the, the writers they. They hand out the script for the new season, and and that's what everyone's going to be doing. So that's sort of like God on Rosh Hashanah with us. We're sort of the characters, so to speak, and and God is the 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 playwright, so to speak, the creator, and He's going to decide what what everyone's going to do. But but it's it's not like television, you know. Torah and life is is much more personal and much deeper than that, and much more loving than that where we ourselves can come before the master of the universe and say, this is the role that I want to play in the coming year, right? So now let's, let's, let's get a little more nitty gritty and a little more practical and go with that thought one more step. So imagine, imagine I've got this great idea and I go up to the showrunner, I'm an actor on the show and I go up to the showrunner and I say, you know what I want to do? I want to be like the world's greatest juggler and you could do a whole storyline, and it could be really interesting and funny and everything like that. And I'll be like juggling, like you know, 14 different things, like a bowling ball and a piece of fruit and a, and, and an electric buzz saw that's on all at the same time, and like a torch, like you know, it will it will be amazing. It'll be amazing. And then you know, the the creator of the show is listening and he's fascinated. And he says, that's great. He says, do you know how to juggle? And I go, no, <laughs> I don't know how to juggle. He goes, well, you know what? I'm not giving you the juggling storyline. <laughs> now imagine I've been taking lessons and I've been studying juggling and everything like this. And then I pitch that same storyline. And he said, do you know how to juggle? And I say, yeah, I've been really working hard at it. He goes, okay, let's do it. So again, this is us taking responsibility in the birthing process of the year that we're going to have. We have to ask ourselves, what role do we want to play? What aspect of my life do I want to go deeper in and be more fulfilled in? And then we have to ask ourselves, what tangible actions can I do right now to start preparing myself for that thing. Right? So there are dating coaches, if someone wants to get married, say, maybe they have to go to a dating coach. You know, before I got married, I wasn't getting married, and I wanted to get married, I started seeing a therapist for the first time in my life. It was very helpful to me, you know, maybe a person if they want to get married, they're not getting married, maybe they start going to a therapist. Right? Maybe they start going to the gym. Whatever it is, but but the the point being that, that they can say to God, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I'm putting in, I'm creating a vessel. I'm creating a vessel for this blessing right now. And I think that that is a very powerful way to come to God on Rosh Hashanah in terms of looking to have our prayers fulfilled. Now, I want to get a little more deep, a little more perhaps Kabbalistic. We have this idea of the letter Yud, and we talked at length about the letter Yud. That's that initial thought, that initial desire, right? And then we kind of tracked it into even being the the point of conception from the male side, right? But that's that's the initial thought. Then we have something called the Kav. The Kav is an extension of the Yud. A Kav is the ray of light. It's divine light that emanates, that shoots from that initial point. Okay, so when it comes to the creation of the universe, first came that that initial thought, that that Yud, and then came this ray of light, which is the Kav. And that ray of light is going to form into the physical universe itself. Okay, now you wanna hear something unbelievable? Do you know Now that ray of light, if you kind of learn it in the the holy books, it goes through all these amazing different checkpoints and it, it, it gets extremely complicated and elaborate, but it's at the same time, the simplicity of the idea is still going on, which is it's that ray of light. Do you know where that ray of light finishes? And the answer is you. You know, when you stand up in profile, you are the letter Vav. You are a straight line. You are the final emanation of God's light. And with that in mind, do you want to hear something wild? What When we talk about the formation of the new world, the new universe, which happens on Rosh Hashanah, What day does that happen on? The sixth day of creation, which is the letter Vav, which is human beings are made. That is the Vav. You are the Vav. Right? You are that last ray of light that God will shine through. And God will shine through you to the extent that you use your free will to open your heart to allow that light to shine through you. It won't be automatic because you are the final gatekeeper of that light. You are the final gatekeeper of that light. And to the extent that you open up your heart and your mind and your hands and your actions, that light is going to come through